All right, so what's your opinion, Chris? Do you think that Islam represents a threat to uh, Enlightenment values that are is worse than Judith Butler? No, I don't. I don't see no. any threat to anything coming out of Islam. I have, not a, I have no... No, I don't. Right. Welcome to the Catrone Zone. With us today is the last Marxist, Chris Catrone. Um, before I pressed record, I was making him remember the Muppets. Yes. Uh, and you were, I described to you how the children's television workshop was funded by behaviorist psychologists who had a kind of technocratic vision on how to create a good society by creating architectures, which would encourage the best, healthiest um, and most polite, I guess, uh, behavior. Um, and and you were mentioning that this was this, this oh, yeah. attitude defined the, the middle of the 20th century. That's right. So I was just, yeah, what I was going to say was that um, we might think of this as, you know, neoliberal, but of course it's continuous with the mid 20th century, like Fordism. Yeah. You know, it's really, uh, you know, what Adorno and the Frankfurt School called the administered society. Right. right. So it's what comes out of the failure of socialism is this kind of uh, technocracy and kind of, um, I mean, really, you know, you know that they thought that Brave New World was the real accurate dystopia rather than 1984. Right. And we discussed that before. And, and, I, and um, I, I feel as though we've got a, com a great combination of both right now, in a way. But, but you know, we got the thought police and the cancellations and the what do they call it the two minutes of of hate or something we got that we got the two minutes of hate for sure yeah um uh but at the same time we're meant to focus on individual uh pleasure as if that is the final form of freedom and and uh and take our soma and everybody has their different brand of soma i guess um well what why did what did the the frankfurt school guys adorno and horkheimer and those guys uh, like or, or think was most accurate about Brave New World? Well, precisely this, a kind of uh, <clears throat> pacified society at the expense of freedom. Mm -hmm. Right. So, uh, you know, being unfree without realizing that you're unfree. Right. Right. Very different right. from 1984. Yeah. And, you know, the thing I would want to underline for today's audiences is that you can fail to realize you're not free, but still think that you are oppressed. Hmm. Um, I, I think that, but that you are, uh, because the problem is not when that has hap happens, the concept of freedom has been so diminished that it is that being safe and cared for and, and not being deprived is what's thought of as being free. I'm not sure whether we have discussed this before, but the difference between modern and ancient freedom, between Aristotelian freedom and modern freedom. Yeah. Right? So Aristotelian freedom is the freedom to be what you are. Mm -hmm. And modern freedom is the freedom to transform what you are. Right. So become different. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. So Aristotelian freedom, something or someone is free if they're kind of unconstrained Un, unhindered in their natural development. Mm -hmm. Whereas modern freedom 
is about the transformation of nature, of inner and outer nature, of one's own nature. Right. Okay. And so I think that modern form of freedom is maybe not entirely forgotten, but often forgotten. Often. And I think that um, we increasingly operate with an Aristotelian notion of freedom. And so everything has its nature. And to be free is to be true to that nature. And to be unfree is to be, you know, unnaturally constrained. Right. Right. So it's very much in keeping with, you know, the theme of what we've been talking about over the last several weeks, um, mm. which is this kind of um, romantic national conception of identity. Mm -hmm. um, and I always like when I when I teach about identity as a category because you know i teach adorno so i have to teach non-identity mm -hmm. and so non-identity is about something uh having a potential to become different from the way it is mm -hmm. but the difference between entity and identity and that's from uh, ralph ellison right from an essay in his book shadow and act where he says that the problem with uh-oh you froze black up. being black uh, you froze up for a second there. Say that again. He says the problem is what? A confusion of like identity and entity around black identity, where uh, it's treated as a matter of being black. Right. Right. So where race is basically a category of being as opposed to a category of becoming. Right. Um, that, you know, blackness as an identity isn't just there. It's the product of history. And it's therefore changeable. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what we want to hold on to in the face of moments which are extremely violent and disordered and regressive, like what's happening now. This is, by the way, what we talked about in terms of genocide and, you know, kind of biological genocide, racial genocide, like the extermination of a, of a genetic race versus cultural genocide, right? The destruction right. of the culture. And in both cases, they're treated as categories of nature. Um, in other words, they're categories of being. So you want to preserve a way of being, mm -hmm. right? And I think that people, you know, kind of got upset with me. I think there was a comment about like, I don't care about I didn't even say anything about my genes. I just said, if there are no like Irish Celtic genes in 300 years, I don't care. And they were like, right. oh, that's because he's gay. Right. They were like, oh, isn't it a natural impulse to want to reproduce your own genes? And I'm like, well, that may or may not be true, but I was talking about like a race. I wasn't talking about like my individual genes, but it's interesting how they immediately identified those things that I would as an individual biologically have an interest in the perpetuation of my clan genes, Irish Celts, right? Which that, where would that come from, right? With, is that evolutionary bi biology that we were all struggling to preserve our own like tribe? I'm not sure I, about that one. <laughs> I, I, right? I have, I, I, on the, to be fair to the people who said it was because you're gay, I, I, I want to say that as a, a, a father of four, um, I have You've become, I have become, I've done that, but also I've become the kind of person who never having intended to be like this, who secretly wants my name, my family name to go on to the next generation. And that seems important to me, whether or not it's 
What did you have? Three sons and one daughter? Yeah. Okay, so what if you had had four daughters? Then, well, I know, but but you know what? I I think at the moment the daughter is looking like she's the most likely one to ever have children. Although I don't know if any of them ever will, but I've decided that her boyfriend, when they marry, should take her name, and the children should have her name. So because you want your be. name preserved. Yes, I want my name to be pa passed down. And then, of and course, we would understand that as some kind of uh, symbol for the genetics. Right. I right. guess. Although I also want my books to be read in 100 years. So I don't know what it is. It's some sort of crazy. No, this is the other thing, right? So it's kind of like, you know, who are we really? Are we what we biologically are or are we as we are socially produced as the individuals we are in our historical moment? And, of course, I mm -hmm. think the latter is essentially right. who I am. Right. Yeah. Like that's 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 what I've become, you know, that there's this raw material of biology, but it's really been produced in society. And, you know, my immortality in terms, you know, of my identity and who I am as a social individual is not really in my genes. It's in my activity. Yeah, ab absolutely. But right. I like I like to believe that the name Lane is associated with a certain kind of becoming and being, you know, that we're a family of, of uh, you know, independent thinkers or something. And that oh, we're they'll gonna... remember they'll remember yeah. the ancestor, the right. progenitor of the tribe. Yes. Yeah. Right. That's what I that's what I secretly want. And I know it's not uh, particularly progressive. But I think it just is what I think. <laughs> so. I mean, look, you know, the point of the matter is society is going to continue. Mm -hmm. You know, people are having children and whether they're children, whether they're, you know, offspring, their descendants, whether biological or otherwise, whether like adopted children really carry on their activity. Right. That's not necessarily mm -hmm. the case. Right. Um, right. We're not in the caste system. We're not in the guild craft system. No, or, you know, if you're a carpenter, your son will be a carpenter, right? You're not going to pass down your skills necessarily that way, right? Your your children, your spiritual children, might not be your biological or familial children at all, right? They so might not be. Sure, I know that, right, right. But if you had kids, you would want them both to be, you know. I think possibly. I mean, I don't know. I think that I'd have a lot of. Um, reticence about having them follow my life path oh no no well right. i want my kids to sublate and you know exceed you know it's, it's a funny thing i'm not sure you know like being an intellectual right you know my family are not intellectuals my parents are not intellectuals mm -hmm. and so i'm not sure that an intellectual life is the best life you know, I'm not sure I'd want my children to be intellectuals like me. Well, that like me part is. Key. Or intellectuals like, you know, like. Yeah, but the Marxist, you know, the Marxist ethos is, you know, fisherman in the morning, poet in the afternoon. Or, you know, right, right, you know, right, right, right. Yeah, I think that I think. Assuming we're still living in capitalism, right? You know that Adorno famously didn't have children. They chose not to have children. Because they said you can never know what army they might be forced to march in. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And so um, 
you know, forced directly or forced forced by circumstance, forced by history. Um, mm. You know, and, you know, I mean, I guess this is really what we're dealing with. We are dealing with history and how is history passed on and what do we make of? I mean, you know, in my book, Republicans and Riots, I do talk about the morbid character of seeing ourselves as the biological descendants of either the oppressed or the oppressors, right? The misery of that, um, you know, of being bound to the past that way. You know, there's um, Asada Shakur, the black nationalist, Black Panther, right? She lives in exile in Cuba and she refers to black Americans as Africans lost in America as if they don't really belong there. And mm -hmm. I, I, you know, I feel like as the descendant of immigrants, am I an Italian lost in America? And am I, am I an Irish lost in America? Do I belong here? Right? Is it just because I'm not descended from slaves that I might belong here more than blacks might belong here? But maybe blacks have earned their place here in a way that as the descendant of immigrants, I have not, you know? Um, so, you know, that whole question of belonging, who belongs here, like this is a settler colonial country, the United States, who belongs here? Uh, you know, I feel as though these kinds of discourses, these kinds of approaches to the problem of alienation have the unfortunate consequence of obscuring alienation itself. Yeah. Like, um, yeah, Deep. and that... That that the, the truth is that alienation is actually universal, whether you're from, you know, whether Africa you're living or, in the place of your ancestors or not. Right. No, because right. you because you're actually not living in the places of your ancestors. You're not. That's right. <laughs> no matter where you are. That's yeah. right. No matter where you are, exactly. And so you know that's the tricky part. And of course, I was just thinking about Liberia. Mm -hmm. where emancipated slaves set up a settler colonial state in Africa mm -hmm. and, you know, set themselves up basically as a ruling class mm -hmm. who were overthrown later, you know, uh, but, you know, again, it's kind of like, did they belong there? Did they not belong there? Well, then where did they belong? Right. And of course, there's the question of Jewish belonging. Do Jews belong in Israel? Well, maybe not, but then they don't really belong anywhere, do they? How much does this have to do with the death of God? You know, the, the failure of or the, the falling away of traditional religious beliefs that describe the world in such a way that you have a place in it. Well, right. So the curious thing is that, um, you know, peoples are the products of migration. Mm -hmm. nobody's quite where they were in terms of biological ancestry. And usually origin stories for the tribe do have to do with how the gods directed them to that place. Right? So the Aztecs migrated out of um, Atzlan, which is in the central United States, but they migrated down to what is now Mexico City, and that was the promised land that they were directed to by their chief god, right? The hummingbird that led them out of the desert to their promised land, mm -hmm. the sun god, 
Right. So where do they belong? Do they belong in their ancestral home in Utah? Do they belong in Mexico? The Aztecs, right? The Azteca people, um, right? And so, uh, you know, the funny thing is, so did we talk about this? Why why Jerusalem? Why the, the Dome of the Rock, you know, the Al-Aqsa Mosque? That's supposedly where God created the world, Doug. Hmm. I thought that happened in Australia. I, <laughs> I, I believe that the indigenous people of Australia are on the original land of the earth and not to this, you know, Johnny come lately, you know. Yahweh? Religion. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. came later. Yeah. Right. And of course, um, no, it's a funny thing, right? So, of course, every, you know, creation story, every origin of the tribe story, the world was created wherever that tribe happened to have ended up, right? To have founded mm-hmm. its culture. But, you know, the Abrahamic religions, so-called Abrahamic religions, um, the religion of the ancient Israelites, and then in the diaspora, Judaism, and Christians and Muslims actually all, I guess, believe that the world was created there in Jerusalem. I mean, the Christians, I'm not sure so much. No, yeah. And the and the Muslims, the Muslims believe it was created there, and Jews believe it was created there, and that's also the rock where Abraham. So is that does that where Eden was supposed to be? Then is that? That's ambiguous. Know? That's ambiguous. Yeah. So it's not exactly paradise. I mean, the question is whether paradise exists in time and space, the way we conventionally think about it, right? But it is the place where. God created the terrestrial world, and it's also the the site where Abraham was going to sacrifice Isaac on that rock. And and God. right, but I mean, once you've fallen from Eden, you're not where you're supposed to be anyway. So For sure, you're where God put us as punishment. <laughs> right, but I mean, we're not. We shouldn't have sinned to begin with. I mean, if from yeah, a but that's that's theodicy. That that is theodicy. Like there, there's a deep theological question. If God didn't want us to defy him, then why did he make us free to do so? Because that's really what it is. Original sin is freedom. Right. I know. Knowledge is another way to put it. Freedom to eat from the forbidden fruit of the tree of knowledge, and we only gain knowledge out of our freedom, and we only need knowledge out of our freedom. We didn't need knowledge in paradise. Right. Right. Because we didn't need to learn to survive. We didn't need to learn to work. We didn't need to learn to change the world. Right? Right. So, mm-hmm. um, no, it's a curious thing. So I just, you know, again, I feel like who belongs where exactly, you know, in the world. And I know that that's just going to seem like sophistry. I know that people are like, oh, Chris Catron, his, his arrogance is only matched by his ignorance. And I'm sure I got some. I'm sure I got some theology wrong there because I'm not a theologian. I'm a Marxist, mm-hmm. right? And what I can tell you is that Marxism is not interested in where people ancestrally belong. Right. Well, have you ever read the book by Kurt Vonnegut called Galapagos? Yeah. Yeah. Right. So um, this is this is the ultimate end of the deep pessimism about freedom that we that emerged in the second half of the 20th century after World War II, that Kurt Vonnegut, in a very human way, in a, in a very funny way, in a very... But named uh, after Darwin, animal. named after the end of the 19th century. Right. But but 
his dream is that humanity after nuclear war gets stranded on the Galapagos Islands and regresses back to the level of a penguin losing their uh, cerebral cortex and just eating fish and flopping around on the rocks all day, swimming around. And basically this is a return to paradise. We go back to being just animals and not people caught up in ideas and ideologies and names and words. We don't have those things. Anymore. So after the failure of socialism, mm-hmm. right? So, uh, you know, Marxism is consumed by history in various ways. And we talked about this, how it uh, adapts to nationalism and Stalinism. That's the big thing that it does. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, there are all sorts of isms, right? Oppress- oppressing us. So racism, sexism, uh, heterosexism, right? Uh, normativity, cisgenderism, speciesism. Mm-hmm. Speciesism. Um, presumably oppresses the other species, but also oppresses us, I, I suppose. Speciesism, anthropocentrism. Right is also part of an oppressive um, affliction of our species, just as you know, uh, Eurocentrism is not good for Europe, Europeans. Right from a mm. from a yeah, because it puts a limit on our understanding to be Eurocentric, makes us provincial. So. Right, I guess so. Right, yeah. It's, um, you know, I mean, it's it's it always is a little bit unclear there. You know, in other words, once the left does away with universalism as like a patriarchal white settler colonialist discourse, right? Then well, you can't, no one, you, 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 you can't, you can't actually do away with universalism. You can only obscure it from yourself. That's I, so I we would say, so we would say Doug, but that's because we're engaged in the master discourse <laughs> okay you All know right. um you know judith butler is here to say right mm-hmm. that the palestinians embody a way of life unassimilable to the american or israeli way of life and that's why they're targeted for genocide so insulting really is it, is it? i think respect so difference. Yeah. respect difference you don't respect difference, Doug? You're only going res- to accept the Palestinians on your terms? Um, I recognize the universal humanity and people. And I don't expect oh, them sure to the express it the does same too. way. But we right. should interrogate that definition of the human. Isn't it the product of disciplinarity? Foucault, the West. <laughs> yeah, I know, I know. No, I mean, you know, there's a case to be made. Um and, you know, in the face of the absence... I mean, look, I've, I've rehearsed the arguments we're having now myself a number of times. And I do know the, the arguments that you're making. What if we can never but... get to socialism? What if we can never get to socialism? Hmm. Then what? Right? Well... Because I come back to that. In other words, if the struggle for socialism is either impossible totally or off the table for the foreseeable future then what do we conclude from that? Then we might conclude that the main task is to preserve nature from the ravages of capitalism. And then okay, but I, I, here's my problem. I feel as though to preclude, to preclude socialism in our future, you have to have already accepted mm-hmm. the idea of being rather than becoming. 
you already are presuming that that we are fixed and that there's something to preserve because otherwise what is the how can we say oh socialism is off the table because of these historical reasons which cannot be overcome because human beings are bounded in a certain way that we we already know and mm-hmm. therefore we can claim mm-hmm. that under these conditions, no species ever, no matter how uh, much time and energy and intellect they put to the problem, would be able to solve these issues and and break you know, free. That's not though necessarily. It isn't based on a claim, right? It's very Heideggerian. It's based on a humbleness. It's based on a circumspection. It's but the humbleness on- itself is founded upon an assertion and a claim. It is not. It's like yes, they the. Affect is one of humility, but the claim is one of being. Well, that's the um, other master discourse, right? That's Freud, right? So we just switch from Marx to Freud, meaning that, or maybe Nietzsche, meaning yeah, yeah. that when we think we're being, you know, deferential and kind and compassionate and humble, really we're making a power move. Right. I totally experience yeah, I own it all the time. I own it. <laughs> Meaning, I, I'm a revolutionary. I want to assert power. I do. I no, I know. I know. And I, I, right. when I assert power, I try to do so directly and with full knowledge and yeah, don't, not, I don't not hide in it. denial, right? But right. what about what? What if the task of life is to be aware that you're always trying to assert power, but to oh, check words to I sort want... of recognize and and back off from that like in other words when you know and to discover all the ways in which we're doing microaggressions that we're asserting power and oppressing people without even knowing it and of course you know that we're most oppressive when we don't realize it i don't disagree with that in a way i do think that it's something of a social theory it's just not marxism no i mean i think it's true that in general, in life, when you are completely uh, obscure to yourself, you're more likely to do great a, a lot of damage when you don't reflect and you and you just react. That's you're, an enlightenment view, though, Doug. It is. I know. I full on embrace the enlightenment. You know, that's as well like, as like uh, you know. rationalistic. <laughs> yeah. Can I say oh, yeah. you were talking yeah. with Conrad Hamilton? Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I was not surprised, Marxism contra subjectivity. And I downloaded his dissertation and started reading it. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it's Heideggerian postmodernism. It is, right? Mm-hmm. And I'm sure that that is fully compatible with some kind of post Maoism, some kind of global South, Samir Amin, some kind of world systems theory, global hegemon. Right. Right. And, um, you know, but that ain't Marxism. It led him to partially, you know, walking backwards, embrace Dugan. You know, <laughs> I, mean, yeah, not I, mean, I know that he doesn't want to embrace Dugan, but he seems awfully sympathetic to Dugan and he doesn't seem to have much of an argument against Dugan. Right. No, the rational. Than, you shouldn't be you shouldn't be a fascist. But then again, Dugan did transcend fascism, didn't he? Well, yeah, I mean, his, uh, Dugan, his, 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 yeah, his critique of Dugan would be Dugan is still somewhat racist and he has sort of a fascist 
character. But he's not a racist, right? He's a culturalist. In other words, he recognizes culture and it, it is a historical variable. And the mistake of Nazism was its biological racism. That's Duquesne. Yeah, but right. But the I think the, the problem is that the cultures he rejects happen probably to match up with races that uh, have suffered his racism. You know, possibly, uh, possibly, but not intentionally and not not, not necessarily. And, um, you know, again, it's, you know, we might even say that racism itself is a product of a kind of Western metaph metaphysics that Dugan doesn't want to sign on to. Well, right. And, and Conrad said that. And right. there's some that there's an argument there. There is an argument there, but it would still be a kind of culturalism and it would still be being and not becoming. Right. But what I, the way I would put it is that racism um, was a, the product of, a, of the of scientific enlightenment thinking not realizing itself uh well, well or because, because yeah well, no right well that's what i mean like yeah uh reifying categories trying to try trying to naturalize social realities and, treating and things justify as a yeah, treating yeah and justify things politics and yeah, yeah absolutely right. right so it is about a kind of an inherent limit and again unassimilability of people and, you know, you could spin that negatively or you could spin it positively. In other words, you could spin it negatively, you know, uh, exterminate the brutes. Or you could spin it positively, you know, don't exterminate the brutes. Meaning, you know, again, um, what are we meant to do? Because that's postmodernism with difference. Right. And again, as a Marxist. But also, you know, I feel like Adorno kind of clued me into this in a way that maybe I wasn't 100% clear on. But I think it's there in Marx. It certainly is there in Hegel, yeah. which is that the difference that we're concerned with is not the difference of the past, but the difference of the future. Meaning we want to create new difference. We don't want to just preserve old difference. Right. Right. So the goal is really diverse multiplicity, the unleashing of difference rather than falling back on pre-existing difference, on heterogeneity. So, right, so it's not that we're from different places. It's that we might go different places. Right. So, okay, so let's, I'm going to now, um, uh, someone in my head is saying, cut the bullshit. People are dying. There's people, bombs are dropping on, on Israel. I'm sorry, on Palestine. You know, on, on, well, on Gaza. Well, on both. It's just that one yeah. one is more effective than the other. Right. So we we uh, you know, how can we talk in this highbrow way, mix making excuses for the? If, let's not call it genocide. Let's just call it the murder uh -huh. of thousands of children in Gaza. And then you know what? Look, I, that's actually happening. You know, yeah. like it's not. That's not. That is that, and I am for a ceasefire. I absolutely oppose uh, the the way Israel has decided to try to root out Hamas in this indiscriminate, violent way. I would say the same thing about it that I did when the U.S. Uh, bombed Afghanistan. I know he does, but when we and and I'm you know I'm not surprised it was, but I oppose the bombing and invasion of Afghanistan, thinking it should have been treated as a, a criminal. Mm -hmm. matter and when it comes you to know, gaza so let's, let's i think try, something similar is the case yeah, but anyhow let's, um, let's but i want to say like how yeah. can we talk this way 
while this, while this while, is while happening. This, right. Well, again, um, I've been watching a lot of Piers Morgan because he's been interviewing a lot of pro-Palestinian activists and thinkers. And, you know, he always comes back to acknowledging Israel's crimes, but saying, how else are you going to get rid of Hamas? And usually his interviewees, his guests, come back with something lame, which is that you can't get rid of Hamas until you get rid of the underlying conditions that produce Hamas. And, you know, until you get rid of the oppression of the Palestinians, these terrorist groups and movements will be generated by circumstances. Yeah, because, and, you know, because everything's a machine. Right. right? So, you know, <laughs> it's, no agency. It's, it's lame. It's lame. But it's um, but it's something. And obviously we wouldn't wholly disagree with that. No. Right. We would not. But what he says is, you know, but Israel is bound to have to try to fight Hamas to prevent them from attacking, etc. And so let's just look at it very neutrally, politically. Mm -hmm. Right. So looked at politically from the cold, sober, stone cold, sober historical view that Fakhri asked us to do. Right. Um, what are the political reasons why Israel is doing what it's doing? Meaning, how is the government of Israel bound to proceed as it must? Right. So who's okay, the government of Israel? Can I put forward yeah, go one ahead. reason? I mean, one reason is that uh, as a state, it's uh, job is to provide security for the citizens of Israel. Yep. So this is a threat to the everyday life of the citizens of Israel. The uh, Hamas has declared its intentions and acted upon them. Therefore, it has the clear and obligation. Danger. Yeah, to 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 act in a way to secure the the state i would counter as a liberal not a marxist the safety right? of its citizens right because securing i would state, say you know yeah well the safety of its citizens right i would counter as a liberal that the uh that the security is one value amongst many and that along with um securing uh the citizenry and in my everyday life uh it should also preserve my freedom and one of the ways to make sure that your that my freedom is preserved is to make sure that no extrajudicial mm -hmm. uh, violation of anyone's rights is going on in the name of security. Therefore, you know, dropping a bomb on a child is violating that child's liberty and right to life. And therefore, the state has to both provide security and liberty. And it, did I ever tell you the story of? Um... The UPS driver who was carjacked in Florida. No, Did tell me that story. That? All right. So the police stopped the UPS truck after it had been carjacked by robbers. Mm -hmm. Hail of bullets. Robbers are killed. UPS driver is killed. Right? Right. Were the police charged with a crime? Of course not. Right? Because they had armed robbers hijacking a truck, driving, you know, criminals right and of course uh, a truck a car is a deadly weapon certainly a truck is and so in the interest of public safety they killed the victim of the crime to protect others right mm -hmm. now so you know in other words of course they didn't want to kill the hostage no 
right? But they did. And they were likely to, and they had to prioritize public safety over the life of the victim, the victim, the innocent victim. Right, which they did also on the day of uh, October 7th, the Israeli forces did. Yeah. Uh, there were uh, Israeli civilians. There was a crossfire, absolutely. Yeah. And but, yeah, but the other thing, but what I would point out is that if we could demonstrate that. <clears throat> but here's the left and the right, right? So yeah. the right is Israel, let's say. Benjamin Netanyahu, he will mm -hmm. say, he won't say there's no such thing as an innocent Palestinian. He will say the IDF is killing innocent civilians. But it's not their fault. It's Hamas's fault. Right. So but there are those within the Israeli state and his party who've declared. There are some, but he's not. He's pulling the trigger. They're not pulling the trigger. The okay. left, on the other hand, the left, on the other hand, there's no such thing as an innocent settler colonialist. No, seriously, Doug. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Seriously. Mm -hmm. They don't think there's such a thing as an innocent Israeli. Whereas Israel does acknowledge that they're innocent Palestinians. No, it's an important distinction between the two players. Uh, I don't know how many people on the left really would embrace this idea that there is no such thing as an innocent Israeli. There are the anti-imperialist, there's that, that hard Maoist third worldist position, but I don't know if that's the universal position of even the socialist left. Well, the Nazi slave rebellion, the whites who were killed, men, women, and children, even going so far as to say that the Nat Turner rebels like beheaded babies, which I'm not sure about that. I don't think so. They did uh, kill children for sure. They, they did, did right? Them. Yeah. How but, they killed them, I don't know, but yeah, they did. right. And so, and I feel like, well, but that was just. That was justified. I think the argument is that. Um, yeah, by I mean, slavery, look, by slavery, yeah, it's justified. Yeah. I, and if the um, I, if I'm remembering this movie correctly, maybe uh, <laughs> I may not be, but The Last Temptation of Christ, oh, yeah, okay, right. Um, there's a moment where Martin Scorsese, uh, Willem Dafoe, right, and and who plays Judas in that? Uh, um, oh, I don't remember. Uh, uh, Harvey Keitel. Oh, Harvey! I was gonna say like a totally unlikely. Yeah, right. Harvey. Keitel. And he and he and he says, you know, and Jesus turned. Uh, this is how I remember it. This is probably is not what Judas I actually. Is he Judas or is he Pontius Pilate? No, I guess he's Judas. I he's Judas. Remember. Yeah, okay. he's Judas. And but anyway, Jesus shows up after he's supposed to have been crucified, and you did. Like, you know the way you just said that he shows yeah. up. If he shows up like in Wayne's World, or he shows up like in Dude, Where's My Car? <laughs> <laughs> exactly he just said shows up but anyway yeah, yeah he just shows, he shows up, up like, and he's like where's my weed man yeah and it shows <laughs> up and like judas is like what the you're not supposed to be here you're the messiah you're you know it's, no i'm just a guy and he's like no well even if you're just some guy we need you as a myth you're more than what you were so nat turner is like that uh -huh. okay nat the nat turner story became yeah, it becomes, a, mi yeah. a myth of something more than what it was. It, in and of itself, no, it was a horrific act. But as a threat and a symbol of the horrific consequences and nature of slavery, it was worth something later to the abolitionists. So they held on to it as 
and made Nat Turner into perhaps, a hero. Perhaps, yeah. I'm just not sure how how mobilized it really was. Yeah, but he did. Like Jesus shows up. Like, yeah, Jesus, dude, where's my right. car? Not like I'm back, but like, huh? What are you doing? You know, like that. Uh-huh, exactly. exactly, right? No, <laughs> yeah. so it's it's an interesting thing because again, the um the conflation of John Brown and Nat Turner, I thought was significant. Mm-hmm. You know, John Brown's body as a union song in the Civil War. Mm-hmm. Right. I don't think that Nat Turner figured that way in the way that John Brown did. Right. So, but again, that conflation. And you know, again we're talking about politics, you know, in other words, are we interested in establishing new myths and legends or are we interested in taking political action? And that's where I feel like, you know, um, you know, I mean, like, I think Lenin is a great historical figure. Do I agree with the hagiography of Lenin in Stalinism? No. Right. And he himself Mm -hmm. would not have. Um, And so, you know, in other words, I'm interested in him as a real, historical human being a thinker Mm -hmm. an actor you know i'm interested in that lenin i'm not interested in some kind of strange messianic figure Mm -hmm. right um you know so uh, you know again but what kind of politics are we doing you know that would work for religious politics because that's the other thing i got attacked for saying that you know nat turner was a crazy christian and perhaps uh john brown was too and they're like uh and I'm like, well, you know, crazy is just a word that I use because I'm Gen X and I'm sloppy that way. I just mean crazy, like wild. You know, he's like a wild Christian. I wasn't like, like a wild and crazy guy. Wild and crazy guy. Right? <laughs> I wasn't talking about like his mental health or something. I wasn't right. saying he was an irrational actor. Right. But I was saying, you know, there were political ideologies mm-hmm. and there were enslaved people who were literate and more aware of political ideologies. You know, in other words, it's not like if you were a slave and you were literate, the only thing that you had was the Bible. No, actually not the case. And how do we know that? We know that from the slave narratives. We know that from the literature that they produced, mm-hmm. right? We know that they didn't just read the Bible. They read, you know, the newspaper. They read Enlightenment thinkers, Right. Um, in other words, they could be political actors acting according to the political consciousness of their time. Like we don't mm-hmm. have to say, oh, well, slave person rebelling, you know, their only option is like turning, you know, the master's religion against the master. Right. Mm-hmm. It's like, yeah. So it's a lot of condescension and, you know, a lot of like exoticization. And a lot of like ascribed motive, you know, and so even the idea that um, the Hamas fighters, you know, are just expressing the personal rage of their trauma of living in Gaza. Right. And I just feel like, well, if that's what it is, then, you know, the blame is on Israel because they should have gotten some heavy duty medications into Gaza to help those people with their mental health issues. So this wouldn't have happened. Of course they should have allowed Gaza to develop according to the state of the art United Nations developmental project of how to like, you know, educate and care for new generations of children. 
Yeah, when they've been traumatized by generational trauma. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, you know, the proper administration of medication and therapeutic techniques in Gaza would have been, you know, they would have had adequate social services. Right. And since that didn't happen, then it's on Israel that the terrorist attack occurred. Of course, at this point, every where's the politics anymore? Like what? There's, what, no, like, there's no politics. Right. There's just, um, well, okay. So I think that we're living in a very paranoid moment. Mm -hmm. You know, everything is genocide. Everything is anti-Semitism. Everything is racism. You know, and it's, you know, this is, and you know, I know from psychology, not necessarily even Freudian psychoanalysis that traumatized people are paranoid. They're driven to a paranoid place. Okay. Right. Here in the United States, leftists, Marxists, mm -hmm. are, is our paranoia excused by personal trauma? I don't want to excuse uh, paranoia. Right. You know, I, I, I don't, you know, we've yeah. been paranoid on behalf of the Palestinians. <laughs> no. is, that, is that really necessary? Right? Uh, no. So what, it, what are we obligated to do? And so we're obligated not to have this psychology of counter-identification of wanting to wipe the smile off the face of Israel. Right. Mm -hmm. That should not be our motivation. Right. Yeah. That should and, be our uh, orientation. That should not be our predisposition. What about our what about our obligation as human beings to try to put a stop to the bombs dropping to when when you can see that uh, all that's gonna happen is it's gonna be one UPS driver after another with with no end to the uh with, with no real damage done to the criminal uh class that uh is Cause you know that stole the UPS truck. It's like all you you can see that this, whatever the justifications are by law and through the state, right. this is this is simply a slaughter. Um, what is our obligation then, as you know, Marxists saw, or anyone else? So I saw Jacob Siegel on Glenn Greenwald. Yeah, and um, you know, and he said he disagrees with the war, he disagrees with Netanyahu, he dis disagrees with the policy. But once war is enjoined, then one is obligated to fight for victory. Meaning the only justification for launching a war is to be victorious. Right. Um, and OK, so it's let's get back to the political consideration. Um, you know, I think that I mentioned and people were comparing me invidiously to Varn, you know, I don't know what Varn's been doing. I th think he he told me that he drops out of the left. Hamas and ISIS, right? And the reason I brought up ISIS, it might be obscure to people, is that unlike Islamic Jihad... Say that again. So people could... Wait, because you broke up there. You oh, broke sorry. up. So say that again. People compared you to Varn, and what did they say? They said Varn would never be as sloppy as I was when I talked about Hamas and ISIS. Oh, okay. Right? And my point there was different. In other words, I said... If Hamas doesn't do it, someone else would, ISIS, mm. right? And the reason I didn't say Islamic Jihad, I could have said that too, is that Islamic Jihad actually are allied with Hamas. In other words, they do agree operationally. Whereas, uh, as far as I know, there's actually been armed struggle between ISIS trying to implant itself in Gaza and Hamas, so Hamas and Islamic Jihad have fought against attempts to establish ISIS 
in Gaza. So I was saying, look, if if Hamas decides we're not doing the armed struggle, there might be someone else who would, right? Now, that also goes for the Israelis. In other words, if Netanyahu doesn't do it, I'm sure there are other Israelis who are waiting to do so, to bring down his government, replace it with the government to do so. Or there could always be a coup d'etat. The military could say this government is not doing its job. And in the interest of public safety, we have to remove them by force. Mm-hmm. That's why coups happen. Mm-hmm. Right? And you could have a military government that says, sorry, we had to do this, but the politicians failed us. And so to prosecute this war, we had to remove the politicians and we'll step down as soon as the war is over. Or you could have the development of Israeli paramilitaries who go and, you know, invade Gaza on their own and, you know, go after Hamas. Mm. Right. So somebody's going to do it. I mean, you know, they're right. There are community communitarian conflicts throughout the world. And those are rarely prosecuted by official armies. They're often prosecuted by irregular paramilitary you know, there's a lot of civilian violence. And of course, in collusion with and complicity of uh, state government authorities, turning a blind eye, but also not, also against the state authority. You know, I mentioned that during the Algerian War of Independence, the Pied Noir did terrorist attacks in France against the Gaulle's mm-hmm. government because they didn't want him to uh, negotiate with the National Liberation Front. And there were people in the military, in the French military, who were sympathetic to the Pied Noir and uh, who were indeed a threat to have a coup and overthrow de Gaulle in the context of that war. Absolutely. And so de Gaulle did have to sort of guard his flank that way. Right. So Hamas doing this because they did it very premeditated, deliberate, years in the planning. What what about the idea that the soldiers took the politicians by surprise, Uh, you know, that it was really a homegrown, you know, just mass based attack planned by uh, soldiers, uh, you know, Hamas fighters. Yeah, Hamas fighters, grunts in the army. No, no, no. It was, um, no, 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 no. It was prepared for longer than that. And like I said, it's the 50th anniversary of the Yom Kippur War. Uh And they've interviewed. So the New York Times has sent journalists to interview the Hamas leaders in exile. And they mm-hmm. said they planned, right? And they, it, it was more successful than they expected it to be, the attack. But they mm-hmm. knew that it was going to provoke an overwhelming response. And they said that they hoped to start a regional war. Mm-hmm. Right? They hoped to create a situation where it would be forced and where this would force the uh, Palestinian issue to be on the agenda regionally. And the way you do that is to force a regional war. Okay. So this takes me back to two things here. This takes me back to Jacob. It's a political Siegel. strategy. It is a political strategy. On the right, part so it takes, this takes me back to Jacob Siegel saying, since we're engaged in war, our aim should be to win yes. and defeat Hamas. But then the question becomes, what does defeating Hamas look like? And I mean, to his wh- credit, he says they. He doesn't say we. They, okay, yeah. They, right. right? In other words, just looking at the Israeli state as an actor, right? 
And look yeah, at okay. Outside. But even even then, so they should uh, uh, aim to defeat Hamas, and as they quickly should as possible, as quickly and as thoroughly as possible. Um, that's the that's the way forward. Not this endless war, but the the difficulty is because that's if you kill too of, many UPS yeah. drivers, then you begin to uh, open well, you know up the, the possibility calculus, of a regional war. Go you ahead. know what the calculus is though. The calculus is. You're either going to kill a lot of people right now, or you're going to kill more people over a protracted long period. Well, you know, do you? There's been so that there's a, a UN official. I don't know who it was. I just saw this. You know, goes goes across my screen, but who argued that because the Palestinians are an occupied people living oh, in Israel, huh? He's the special UN special rapporteur to the Palestinians. Right, the French word, right? The right. word of diplomacy. So he's he's the rapporteur, he's the rapper, he's the talking guy for the UN. Yeah, and he right. said they they are they have a right to resist an armed resistance because they're an occupied. Yeah, not only that, but somebody else who was not uh, Palestinian or representing them said the French. I mean, I'm sorry, I was think it was a French UN official as well, but that the Israelis don't have the right to self defense. Oh, that's the same guy. That's the same guy. So the he's same guy, a same Palestinian, guy. but he's a UN envoy to the Palestinians. Okay, all right. And yeah. he said that, uh, you know, occupiers don't have the right to self-defense. Okay, by who? Right. Like in other words, you don't you don't expect them to defend themselves. Well, it's a question, right? I mean, if let's say an, a Native American reservation in the United States got armed by and by Trudeau. Trudeau sent arms into the Native Americans and they launched a terrorist attack and killed a thousand people. <clears throat> would the people. U.S. government have the right to self-defense? Of course they would. Y yeah, well, maybe not as a, an, as a... Maybe they couldn't treat the natives but there on are the reservation there. as... There are, there are actually treaties there in a way that there right. isn't with Israel and the Palestinians. Oh, okay, right. Be, right. right. Okay. The, the reservations have sovereignty in a way that the Palestinians. Recognized. Yes. Yeah. And they have a recognized treaty relationship, meaning that they've given up foreign policy rights to the U.S. government. All right. So let's say that, you know, uh, some gangs in New York get together like uh, the gangs from the Warriors, you know, the ones that dressed up like baseball players and and uh, I don't know, uh, mimes. I think there are some mimes and they get together and they attack downtown New York and they kill uh, a thousand people and then they run back to Coney Island. Would the police be justified in destroying a good part of Coney Island and killing many thousands of people in an effort to get those gangsters that had come and killed a thousand people in New York City, uh, Manhattan? You know, right? It would that, be that's the question. Yes, yeah, it's, it's right. political, meaning that um, it would be a political calculation. Meaning, right. Who are you going to offend more? The people who are crying out for blood to stop it or the people who are going to be bloodied in the suppression? I think that the good liberal position is to say we will fight these criminals. We'll try to get the ones who are the leaders uh, right away using good S, you know, put Colombo on the case. We'll we'll kill you know, them or, or bring them in and we'll know. accept that there's going to be even more people killed than the ones we kill right now in the long run in order to avoid the state 
killing well, them now. They get, then they get voted out, or they get sued in court, and they or they get impeached. I mean, not well, if they did a good job of taking the the ringleaders. So you make a big scapegoat. Oh, okay. Well, that's different. Well, the you thing know? is, right. So the thing is, you know, what are they trying to do? Because I also saw some discourse about this, about like defeating Hamas versus destroying Hamas. Yeah, right. That was on Glenn Greenwald. That, right. That's Jacob Siegel again. Yeah. So defeating Hamas means destroying their or, uh, or impairing their will to fight, whereas destroying Hamas means making them incapable of fighting. Right. So defeating means that you kind of force them to surrender you know, as a choice and destroying means you're not even giving them the choice because. And, and he was ability. advocating for you. He was advocating for destroying Hamas, not defeating them. I think. I don't know. Was he advocating or was he describing why the Israelis? I think he, I fight? think he accepted that defeating them was going to be almost More impossible. More Whereas difficult. destroying them would be possible. possible. You, could, you could kill all the current leadership, but you couldn't do defeat hamas and you could destroy their infrastructure and you know affect yeah. their ability to launch attacks from gaza into israel yeah but you but but you can't kill an idea right but you can't you can't uh force them to give up the will to fight that exactly yeah and it, yeah well, even if you kill the current leadership there will be others who will have the will to fight later on that's right um and so you know it does come down to politics and right. You know, that's why the body count doesn't really capture what's really going on, because at the end of the day, and this is where we started out in our first discussion about this, when I said I was reading Hegel mm -hmm. and Hegel talked about military transactions, that, you know, military conflicts are just moments in a negotiation. Right. And of course, we think, you, you know, it's either violent or nonviolent. It's either negotiated or it's military. No, actually, no, right? Because when does military force happen? It happens when negotiation breaks down. Yeah. Happens when one but side violence alone never is enough. You can't just kill. I mean, I suppose it, there's a, there are times where if you just Genghis Khan style go in and murder everyone in a country or something, then you could settle things that way. But otherwise, but even then, um, it wouldn't necessarily settle it because either Israel or the Palestinians exist in a larger world, meaning right. they do have to relate to other countries, to other polities. In other words, right. ultimately, you know, let's say that, um, I don't know, the Hamas got a secret weapon that could kill all genetic Jews, like a biological weapon that they could release and kill all the Jews in the historic land of Palestine. Right. Well, how would the rest of the world deal with them after that? Probably not. not well, probably yeah. not. Uh, probably a lot of them would die. Well, there's that. But let's say, <laughs> that's right, there's like a secret weapon. It's like some kind of other kind. No, of I mean, like it, they're gonna find not, out that there's not, some Jewish not blood. Using, not them. using Jewish science, Doug. <laughs> okay, maybe right. use the science of Dr. Jacob. Okay. All right. Fine. Right. Um. So we got some Martian science that actually can distinguish between different <laughs> Semites. Right, right. Right. Um, and so, right. But like, you know, so at the end of the day, whoever wins still has to deal with the rest of the world. Like, yeah, absolutely. And that's what wipes and, out the other side, you know. And that is exactly the position that Israel's in right now as well when it comes to how many people are dying in Gaza. And, and Israel... Had a big it's a diplomatic problem for them. It is. 
they had a big PR bump after the October 7th attack. Uh, in America, anyway, uh, more Democrats than ever supported Israel, more Republicans than ever, all, all across the board, an increase in support for Israel. by the way, like, so it's not a good look for Israel to kill all these Palestinians. Just the way it's not a good look for me to, like, quote Adorno and be this arrogant prick. Well, I know. That's right. right. It's not a good look. <laughs> and I'm like, motherfuckers, it's not about looks. Like That's actual true. politics, actual politics is not right. PR. Yeah, but in the United States, this is the dirty secret. In the United States, our politics aren't really all that much about what it's about. No, it's there. all about how it looks because actually the differences are pretty minor. Yeah, what it's going to be about is like, well, how will this affect? Yeah, it's a popularity contest. How does this yeah. affect Biden? Is Trump going to look better? Will the Democrats get split on this? And the people who are out there on the street uh, protesting against the, the, is, is, you know, the Israeli bombardment of Gaza are also calculating that this will damage the Democratic Party and hurt Biden's chances in 2024. Because it's going to hurt the youth vote, right? And yeah. there's a generational divide. And, you know, younger people are more anti-Zionist, anti-imperialist, anti-Israeli pro-Palestinian, and that would go maybe for Jewish kids too, right? Um, you know, maybe maybe the anti-Zionists outnumber the Zionist children, possibly, the college kids, I don't know, you know? And so, you know, all of these things, you know, these are Democratic Party constituencies. There is such a thing as a Jewish vote. No, absolutely. And, and the younger Jewish voters even, even the youngest Jewish younger Jew Jewish voters are more sympathetic to the Palestinians oh, yeah, than there absolutely by far. And sure. and so um yeah so it's going to possibly have that consequence. I don't think though that it will necessarily have that consequence because I think it's not consciously being done with this with that impact in mind. It's not like people are telling themselves I'm going to go protest this in order to undermine Biden because I want to make them pay. It's like a, it's like a secret even from the people who are doing it. Um, you know, they I, might I, be intentionally doing it. In other words, this is a negotiation and it is like a struggle over like congressional resolutions and verbiage and, you know, like Bernie, like, you know, Bernie, why didn't Bernie support the ceasefire? Do you think? Well, you know, a number of things, right. So it's not like simply a policy. In other words, he could he could in you know privately in his own thinking acknowledge the injustice and impossibility either or of the of a ceasefire. You know, Hamas has got to go. That's what he said. But he's a political person, so I think that when he said that, you know, I would say, what would the left say? They would say he caved to pressure, right? Um, I'm not so sure, right? In other words, maybe he does want to be some kind of broker between wings of the Democratic Party where mm -hmm. he maintains his credibility, where he risks his credibility, but he realizes he's not going to entirely lose his progressive credibility, right? Mm -hmm. uh, to be closer to Biden on this one, on this one. Right. Uh, because, again, it's interesting. Biden, you know, they are criticizing the Israelis. They are. Right. And I know that the left in their rhetorical position are like Biden is like 
giving cover for genocide. Uh, well, no, actually, he's not. Right? I mean, I know that from their perspective, because again, they're fighting over rhetoric. Right? But if you want to know what Biden's trying to accomplish, what Biden's trying to accomplish is to keep the Israelis on a leash. Yeah, well, that's what I figured. The yeah. right wing is there to say that that's what he's doing, and they're probably right about that. In other words, of course, they're tendentious and rhetorical, too, the, the Republicans. Oh, yeah. Right? Of course they right. are. But they're probably more accurate about that than the progressive opposition to Biden is. Right? Mm -hmm. So they're both engaged in dishonest rhetoric. So Biden being attacked from the left and attacked from the right, they're both dishonest in their rhetoric. But I feel like, actually the right is probably more accurate as to the significance of Biden's policy. Well, you know, Glenn Greenwald has pointed out how Joe Biden has been an, an adamant supporter of Israel throughout his whole career. Uh, yes. And he ran a long series of clips where Biden is said, if Israel didn't exist, we'd have to invent it. Sort of like sure, sure. Need, need Jesus, you know, even if, if since when, if he just showed up, well, if COVID and hadn't, didn't exist, they would have had to have invented right, exactly. being reelected in 2020. <laughs> right. But if Israel didn't and exist, we need they to invent, did invent it. it. That's right. convenient. <laughs> <laughs> Anthony. <No. Fassi. laughs> well, that, that's actually true. But, but you know, we're going to get canceled from everything if now, not, not by our own viewers, but by the by algorithm uh, algorithm. But um, no, the, uh, Digital point is, why did Biden say that? What is in the strategic interest of the United States from Joe Biden's perspective and from the perspective of uh, the kind of center of the of the blob or, you know, the D.C. consensus? I mean, what is it? Siegel's probably right about this, what? which is that the U.S. wants a clientele relationship with all parties, meaning he wants the Israelis he Biden wants the Israelis, the Palestinians, the Saudis, the Iranians to all be clients of the U.S. Well, sure. Right. Yeah. And that that's one way of approaching things because they kind of are clients. Of but the why Israel in particular? What what I mean, they're and they're why would you need so, uh, the state that the other clients? Other. Right. They them off each other. Right. In other words, they think that stability is brought about through a kind of um management from above, I mean, the little bit of the incoherence of his perspective is that he thinks the Trump policy was correct and more effective, which is to basically deal with people as, you know, uh, participants in a negotiation. So countries are not clients, they're allies, they're enemies. And as allies or enemies, you negotiate terms. And he thought that was better for all concerned that it puts the U.S. in a more honest position and it puts the people that the U.S. is dealing with in a more honest position rather than this clientele relationship, which is, you know, damaging for all parties. Right. So he, I think that he even made the argument that the U.S. is on both sides of Russia, Ukraine, which is, of course, true, too. Mm -hmm. Right. Because even though they have a sanctions regime on Russia, of course, they are allowing Russia to earn money on the international market in their own way. And in other words, it's assumed Russia is going to be able to sell some oil, right? So in other words, it's all kind of baked into the situation. And that's what he was saying about the Middle East. So what does it mean to be a client? Is it something like a trade partner and a dependent, and someone who, basically someone who owes you money uh, yeah, one way or another? 
So the idea is that um, actually Biden does want a negotiated. But by that, by that logic, we are the clients of China and actually Europe as well, and a lot of other places, the U.S. because we have a dependency on the rest of the world. So you know, I was watching Yanis Varoufakis and his mm-hmm. thesis on the global minotaur. You know, which is to say that the world system remains American. And uh, like agreeing a deal with countries on the basis of the yuan and like, you know, giving loans or whatever, right, to, to developing countries. All that that means is that the U.S. has offloaded the risk to China. So China is like a buffer for, you know, kind of taking on the risk of third world debt rather than directly right. to the IMF because ultimately Chinese assets are based on dollar values. So you're just putting an intermediary. So it's actually, it's not about China replacing the U S or the Yuan replacing the dollar. It's just putting the Yuan in the intermediary function in the global economy to be able to absorb some of the risk of like debt default. You know, you cut out again. So did Giannis say this, that Giannis said that in fact, even with Chinese currency taking a new role in the world, and in fact- Still serving the US, still serving the dollar economy at a global scale. Right. Mm -hmm. That's right. And and of course that's true. In other words, it's not like, so the right wing, you you know, I watch Fox News and the Republicans are like, the Democrats are aiding and abetting the rise of China. Well, no, the Democrats are banking on the idea that the rise of China can ultimately serve U.S. interests. So I would say it's not that the U.S. is a client of China. It's that China is a client of the U.S. Okay. well, I mean, so you're saying that that, so being someone's client means that you lose in relationship to them. It doesn't mean that it means dependency. And of course, the U.S. does think like this policy this clientelist policy. I'm sure that they believe that it is ultimately in the interest of China. Right. But do, right? but if, if you set up a buffer like that in China and then that buffer goes away, and you may way, find that you needed that buffer. Aren't yeah. you dependent? Don't you, doesn't your system become dependent sure. on that? It's still in a subordinate role. And the reason that I'm saying right. this it's a subordinate that, role, but there's a, you know, the U.S. may, you know, yeah, the U.S. kind of dictating these terms to try to keep the whole system going and service to, of the U.S. dollar. Yeah, the U.S. is trying to control the rise of China in the same way that it controlled the rise of Japan and Germany. Right. Right. Do you remember how afraid everyone was of Japan in the 80s? Yeah, I know. That's so silly. In other words, the left has been like this. And there is a kind of petty bourgeois hysteria that does think that international trade is a zero-sum game. It isn't. And so basically, what's the difference between Trump and Biden on China? The difference is simply tactically management styles. They're both trying to manage the rise of China in the greater interest of the U.S. and of China. They just think that one policy versus the other policy is the way to do it. And it's like a carrot and stick approach and the balance of carrots versus sticks and which sticks you use and which carrots you use. That's the only thing they really disagree on. They don't disagree on the fundamentals. The fundamental right. is you want but the rise of China to which benefit one is the using, Which one's and using the carrot? Which one's using the carrot? Which one's no, using the stick? They're both using a combination. Yeah, but I mean, like, it seemed to me that Biden has been using the stick 
even more than Trump did. I mean, there's a threat. It's been. And they can both accuse each other plausibly, credibly of selling out to China. Right. Because that is the dishonest rhetoric. Neither is really doing that. And by the way, so from Biden's perspective, right? He's like, look, Mm -hmm. if we don't manage the rise of China correctly, then we might get Trump or worse. Because they're not so afraid of Trump's China policy. Like everything's not a geopolitical thing. It's not like, oh, they're against Trump's foreign policy and therefore the deep state. No, they're against Trump on all any number of reasons, right? They don't want there to be a white Christian nationalist electorate that's a real force in American politics that's pandered to, mm-hmm. right? There are all sorts of reasons to oppose Trump. But if you want to successfully oppose the Trump phenomenon or the rise of something even worse, then you got to succeed in some way, right? You got to undermine the ability for an alternative policy to be offered. You know, and you do have to coerce your political opponents into agreeing on fundamentals and having a basic consensus. And again, my point about Trump always from the very beginning, from 2016, why not Trump? is that this is all hysteria and exaggerated because there's so few differences actually (laughs) between Trump and the Democrats, especially between Trump and the Democrats. Mm -hmm. But, you know, let's say that he has differences with mainstream Republicans. In other words, people have made it into he's an extremist, he's outside the norms, this and that. It's like, well, clearly not. So what is it about? It's about electorate. Right. And it's about like, do you want to like upset the way the Democrats and the Republicans have agreed to compete? Right. Mm-hmm. Or do you want to introduce a kind of a wild card, as Chris Christie said back in the day, the chaos candidate? Right. Do you want to do you want to bring a level of uncertainty into electoral politics in the United States? You might not want to do that. Right. But then you got to perform. You do have to succeed in some way. And this is all that these people are about. In other words, if we think of like Benjamin Netanyahu, Hamas, by the way, are not worried about elections. No. Netanyahu is, but if you think that who Netanyahu is, is like a militant settler colonialist who wants Judea and Samara, wants the West Bank, and can undermine the Palestinian Authority by supporting Hamas in Gaza so that you can say, look, the Palestinians can't govern themselves, so we're going to get rid of Hamas and Gaza. And, you know, while we're at it, let's get rid of the Palestinian Authority and, right, the West Bank too. If you think that that's, that's who he is essentially, then you're ignoring the fact that this is a parliamentary politician for decades. Of course, his main thing is winning elections. That's his main thing. And he's a mainstream politician. In in Israeli politics, right? This is not like fascism. It's not like, uh, you know, again, like the U.S. turned fascist in 2016 when Trump was elected or Israel turned fascist when this or that, when Netanyahu was, you know, came back in and passed this law or did that. No, 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 no. Right. So it's all a calculus. And just at a very basic level, the military action that he's taking is based on that calculation, And he does have to worry about, there are protests against the war now in Israel. I know. 
Right. And they're being built on the backs of protests against his corruption and sure. judicial reform. Yeah. The same people. And maybe this is going to be more widespread, actually, than the other protests. So it was pretty widespread, the other, I thought. Yeah, I, this I, could yeah. be even more. So in other words, he's having to, you know, can he rally people out of the Hamas attack to get more support? Is he endangering the support that he already has? Is he, you know, because he's taking a risk. He's taking a risk. And what if the military operation goes south? It's a big risk. Yeah, I mean, there are a lot of people in Israel, or at least there are people who I've seen on American television from Israel who said, or American internet, who said Netanyahu failed to utterly, utterly failed to defend he Israel. Should, yeah, he should step down. That's right. Absolutely. Um, a lot of people are saying that. And so this is this is this is what he's thinking. So he's thinking, how do I do this in such a way where, you know, it's going to be effective? That's like really important. Right. Where it's not dilatory, you know, it's not like going to get them bogged down where it's effective, where it might offend foreign public opinion but not too much, right. right? And where ultimately he can succeed and that will seem to justify the collateral damage, right? I mean, that's what they're thinking. And they're also thinking, you know, that there are political competitors waiting in the wings. right? Like that's the main consideration, right? It's a political situation. I mean, it's a democracy of whatever kind. I know that this is not... Like well, listen, I mean, I feel like we started off by saying the problem with the left is the left is uh, too fixed to the idea that there is a, a being, a way of the way things mm. are in the world that are are fixed. And and we really need to get to the idea that there's a becoming and that things could change. And then by the end of this, now we're talking about things. Real like, politic. Yeah, like real politics. I'm just and, saying we need to know that in order to think of what do we want to change and how do we want to change it? Right. right. And that by setting impossible goals, like eliminating Israel as a settler colonial state. Yeah. Right. And where that means, I don't know what that means, because it can mean all sorts of things. You know, like I'm not I don't think Rashida Tlaib is secretly. You know, well, does it mean a two state solution? Is that all it means with some people having the right of return in Israel? Like we give them back some, get rid of the settlers in it the West could Bank. Mean that, but generally, relocate the settlers, and then I would say the left. I would say the left. The left, left, mm -hmm. are not two state. They're one. Right. State. I'm a one stater myself, but I'm not a one stater on capitalist you know, grounds. Right. Like you know you. Right. No. You know what? Even like just give everyone in in uh, Israel and the the territory that's called Palestine the right to vote. Uh, give them equal protection under the law, you know. That's uh, a one state. Uh, that's a one state solution. I'm a one stater, and and uh, give them right to free free speech and free assembly, and and draft, you know, maybe redraft or draft a constitution, and and live well, with the constitution. It could be that I guess that's revolutionary, but it's like bourgeois revolutionary. It's not right? necessarily I mean, revolutionary. And again, you could say that. The Palestinians themselves might not vote for that. No, I know. There's not. They I mean, not vote for that. They might want more self-determination. Right. 
right? And then right. they would they basically they won't believe that those even if they have them formally that they'll really have them, which is and a of problem. course the question is, and this is why the settler colonialist thing rears its head, is that would the Jews in Israel vote for that? Maybe no, not. probably not. Well, they might, right. but but you'd have to build it up as a. They might, but not now. Be, not, the, not now, but maybe, maybe you know, if the October seventh hadn't hadn't happened, like if because there was already a need for the defense of bourgeois rights, right in in Israel, that uh, well, that was what the judicial reforms. Of course, and there's a you know there is a large Israeli constituency for um, better policy towards the Palestinians, absolutely, yeah. right. But again, the question is, well, is that some kind of like liberal humanitarian undermining of the Palestinian way of life that's even more insidious. Well, I, I'm fine with it if it is, you know, like... Right, right. But that. I'm just I'm just saying, why would the left... What is a Palestinian way of life? Getting bombed by Israel? I mean, what are we talking about here? Is the, the great Palestinian way I of life? I saw an interview with Elon Papi, right, mm -hmm. who's a dissident, and he said, well, you know, uh, the Palestinians know how to grow herbs, and we buy ours at Walmart. <laughs> right. yeah. and, do we, and do we want the Palestinians to give up growing their own herbs or do we want them to buy GMO look man I'm in the Pacific Northwest you can not only grow herbs here but you can sell it legally it's okay herb. <laughs> herbs. oh what oh oh, oh. <laughs> right <laughs> um, no but you know and, uh, and he's like a liberal I knew what you meant yeah I know yeah. I'm just like, no he's a liberal uh, and, uh, you know, so he's not like a total reactionary, but he starts sounding like Judith Butler there. It sounded a little. Oh, no, it sounds so worse. Like we they want to we don't we want to protect the, their rights to do their interesting, primitive folk dances. And, you know, <laughs> I mean, it's fine. I mean, look, I, I, I you know, we might not want just GMO herbs. No, but that's a separate question. You know, we it's might want question. some art, artisanal herbs. We might want some boutique herbs. Yeah, right? and we might okay. not want everything to be Walmart. We might want some shishi rich people's shop of herbs. Yeah, and we might even want a society where it it is we could have something other than GMOs and not have it be boutique bourgeois. That's just in the Doug. Because people are dying now. Again, people are dying now, right? And so, you know, the question is, what are they dying for? Right. right. And that that is the question. What are they dying for? What are they dying for? And I, I, you know, we talked about this last time. I hope that the Palestinians aren't dying just to salve the conscience of some Western liberals. Yeah, listen. What, what? Why don't we pick this up from there in the in the second half? We've been talking for an hour and twenty two minutes. I don't. I feel as though, uh, you know, I, I felt very relaxed in this first half, which probably means I'm just going to get trounced. Uh, because oh, you're letting uh, me get away with murder again, Doug. I'm letting you murder people. Um, so I shouldn't. Every word that I'm saying. Yeah. Right. Every yeah. every second we're wasting, bombs are dropping. People. How come I? You know, I say often enough in the last couple of episodes, I've been saying things that you've corrected from a more left wing position than what I've been saying, and people don't get they after notice. me. They don't know. No. They don't know. Why is? Why because is that? Like, oh, Chris Kachern is a pro imperialist. Like the people who are complaining about me had their mind made up about me a long time ago. So it's all bad faith. It's all bullshit. Yeah. yeah. That's yeah yeah. All right, I'm going to stop recording and I'll send you another link in just a minute. I'm going to